0: You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.
1: I grew up attending a Catholic church. As a child, I appreciated its predictability. I loved its solemn rituals, yet it was not a place for the messy and unpredictable emotions of its congregants. And so church was not the first thing I turned to when difficulties arose in my adult life. I turned to many non-Western shamanic wisdom traditions. I annotated the hell out of Pema Chodron became a spiritual workshop junkie, listened religiously, and still do, to the On Being podcast. These acts of mainly solitary seeking have been intellectually fascinating and personally enriching, but through none of them did I actually grieve, particularly in the presence of other humans. Aside from with my partner, this church is the first place where I was able to truly and deeply cry. I had years' worth of built-up grief over a marriage that collapsed, a daughter lost, a move a thousand miles away from friends and family. Very few situations had allowed or provoked those tears. Not hospital rooms, not courtrooms, not even my therapist's office. I had begun to believe that I was someone who could not cry that the grieving part of me had somehow zombified, frozen up, would never thaw. And then I came here. At first, I would sit in these pews and simply cry at terribly inopportune times. (laughs) Surprisingly to me, the grief appeared to have very little to do with what was being said up here on the chancel. My profession is to read and write and edit words. so. Again, this was surprising. It was more like there was a certain frequency I could tap into here, a collective non-judgment, a collective holding, a collective leaning into unconditional love that tipped the balance on the ordinary. The Franciscan priest Richard Rohr says, the spiritual journey is a constant interplay between moments of awe followed by a general process of surrender to that moment. We must first allow ourselves to be captured by the goodness, truth, or beauty of something that is beyond and outside of ourselves. For a while, I kept on coming here just because I was surprised by my own grief. Because sitting here, it began to feel like the sacred thing that it is, the unifying thing that it is, raw human emotion as our common human currency. Now when I come to church, just by dint of sitting in a room full of people gathered with similar intentions, I am still surprised into awe by the power of the collective, which becomes its own thing, so much bigger than the sum of its parts. Come, let us worship.
2: my partner here Ashley are you here hi, hi. <laughs> Ashley Harand. thank you for making me do this sermon wow. churches matter church matters the Methodist Church mattered to Richard Allen it mattered so much That he was not going to let the false gospel of inequality and the segregated seating patterns of the church interfere with the message that he believed God had called him to share with the world. When Alan and his followers were faced with the surreal, ontological obstacle of their blackness during worship, they stood up, they walked out, and they said, let's build a church that will welcome us, that will hold us, and sustain both our faith and our humanity. Now, growing up in Philadelphia, My family had a long-standing connection to these little AME churches that dotted the coastline of the eastern seaboard from New York City down through the Carolinas. In every little hamlet or town, there was an AME church. I knew who Richard Allen was, and he loomed large in the imagination of our family and other families whose history went back in Philadelphia to the late 1700s. It was this history, this story, that gave birth to a church. It gave birth to Church of the Open Door, a church with a mission to serve the spiritual needs of black LGBT folks in Chicago that I co-founded in the mid-90s. My partner at the time, Alma Crawford, whose grandfather was an AME bishop in Detroit in the 1930s, also had that Richard Allen DNA, those resistance genes running deep through her veins. At the same time, I was in seminary at Meadville Lombard. Alma was already a UU minister and was commissioned in the United Church of Christ as well. Together, we had both known for years that there were few places of respite and spiritual growth for black LGBT folks. Many had been abused by oppressive, misguided, hateful theology in their churches that they grew up in and experienced overt racism and ridiculous microaggressions in white churches that welcome gay folks. So, like any beginning of anything in Chicago's black community, we got some big trays of fried chicken wings, (laughs) potato salad, cornbread listen to that menu, aren't you hungry? Collard greens, iced tea, and a slew of sweet potato pies. And we put the word out. We've got food and we've got a place for you to talk. A gathering was starting for conversation about spirituality, faith, and our identities as LGBT black folks. The people came, not just for the food. They came wondering if this could be really possible. Their eyes wide open, a little suspicious and filled with hope of a new spiritual experience. They came. Our talks were rich, lengthy, deep, broad, filled with childhood church memories, with grandma, coming out stories, questions about hell, doubts about the veracity of the Bible, longing for community, and a hunger for peace and love and respect. After a few months, we ran out of chicken and we ran out of tissues. We didn't have enough chairs anymore. So, we said, maybe we need to start a church. Now here, I'm in seminary, right? I'm running back and forth to class. But like Richard Allen, Alma and I were going to face similar obstacles if we did that. We were going to face obstacles in ministry from our faith's leadership. And we did from the very beginning. Now, these were the years of the UUA's extension ministry program. That was in the late 80s through the late 90s. There was a whole decade. And was also a period in which there was an increase in the number, particularly, of African-American UU ministers going through the process, getting ordained, doing all the hoop jumping and eye dotting. But we were not getting called to churches. We were not getting called to churches. So they created a program for ministers of color and charged them with starting new congregations in urban areas. Now this was done with the financial patronage of the UUA and large white UU congregations that were flush with cash in the suburbs who each contributed a donation for the ministers and their programming. Now needless to say, most of these extension churches failed miserably because they asked black UU ministers to recreate white churches with black bodies. The structure, music, liturgy had little to do with black culture. Thus, the worship services attracted few members, and they were short lived experiments in why inauthentic people of color churches don't work. Now, because we did not want to become a part of that narrative, we didn't want to be a lesser than church, we didn't want to be a program of the UUA. We didn't want to be dependent on handouts and the shifting sands of UUA initiatives that changed from year to year. So we set out on our own and established their church first and affiliate with the denominations on our terms later. I knew that if I wanted to serve a UU congregation, I better start one. Because as much as I wanted throughout my studies and seminary to preach and teach and serve, I could not imagine ever being called to a se- as a senior minister of a UU church. Unimaginable back then. The likelihood was slim to none, particularly as an African-American gay person. There were only, at that time, two called UU ministers that were black. One was my minister, Michelle Bentley, in Chicago at First Unitarian Society. And the other, who came out of that church, was Mark Morrison-Reed, and he was in Canada. Like Richard Allen, who loved his Methodist faith, We loved our Unitarian Universalist faith and set out to start a church with folks that sought to worship in a space where we would be free, free to be ourselves without the racist gaze or the side eye of homophobia. So what did Church of the Open Door believe? Now, because Alma, a Christian, UU, and me, a humanist UU, were adept at walking and chewing theological gum at the same time. We sought syncretism in our framework. We knew that Unitarian Universalism and the principles are general enough that every well-meaning person we knew agreed with that. But to meet the folks that we intended to serve where they were, we knew we needed to be a UU Christian church, where the messages of Jesus' love, no hell, and radical hospitality were central to the culture and revolutionary news for most people we would meet. We knew that our beliefs had to be an, have an aspirational edge to them. So we started to craft almost like proclamations that formed the church. We wrote them up on the board. We said, we needed these proclamations to make this real. We need to say them loud to ourselves. And we believed that we had nothing to apologize for. We had nothing to explain nothing to ask forgiveness for. And certainly, we did not want to be tolerated the way many of us had been in churches who did not love us. We were unapologetically black, unapologetically HIV positive, unapologetically gay, and unapologetically progressive UU Christians. Now, our mission statement was this. And it was one of the little pluggers some of the pluggers that we handed out in the clubs and on the street corners and it said church of the open door is a sacred assembly of black lesbian gay bisexual transgendered and heterosexual sisters brothers lovers friends and allies gathered at the invitation of Jesus and humanity to seek justice, to extend hospitality, to deepen understanding and wisdom, to affirm our identities, to receive healing and power, and to celebrate the transforming presence of a living God. I haven't said that in a long time. Now, who are we trying to reach? Now, we had to ask ourselves, how do you start a church for people who don't know they need a church? (laughs) That's a difficult question. So we knew that black gay folks desired communities that extended beyond the bars, the nightclubs, and the HIV AIDS clinics. We needed some place to be whole without a health crisis or alcohol and the limits of our fabulousness in gay social circles. We wanted to reach out to folks whose fondest memories of going to church with their family had been dashed by a homophobic comment from the pulpit. We wanted to reach the gay youth who were creating culture every day, amazing culture, writing, singing, creating dance moves on street corners, but were making risky life choices. We wanted to reach the elderly gay couple that attended a church that they have been a member of for 30 years, but were simply tolerated at a distance, but never embraced in solidarity and love. We wanted to reach the young queer professionals who felt it was their responsibility to build Black-led institutions of self-sufficiency. We wanted to reach out to the Black gay descendants of Richard Allen, his descendants that were LGBTQ. Now... We've exhausted our apartment space. Where are we going to meet? How are we going to get the word out? We had a few dollars. And when I say a few dollars, I mean a few dollars. A few dollars from a UU grant. A few dollars from our affiliation with the UCC. But we didn't know where we were going to go. So we went to our families. We went to our families, and we borrowed as much as we could. And then I did probably what everyone tells me now, that I'm 61 with no retirement. I drained all of the money I had in savings and put it in the till. And then we went to see Reverend Jesse Jackson at Operation Push. That's right, Operation Push. We asked him if we could use the chapel at 4 p.m. They had a small chapel, big auditoriums, but we just wanted to use the small chapel at 4 o'clock on Sundays. Now, Reverend Jackson had just added LGBT concerns to the national platform of the Rainbow Coalition. So we knew that this was a good time to ask him, Any hesitation from him, we were going to put him on blast, go to the press, and do all kind of publicity that he would not want. (laughs) That's how you had to roll in Chicago. (laughs) Now, he might have seen the ultimatums in our eyes. And we said, well, we can pay $100 a week. And he said, "Okay," And there we went. We also met at 4 p.m. because the mean age of our congregation was 31, and Chicago's got fabulous nightlife. So we knew a morning service was out of the question, which was a smart move. And we also had folks who had working class jobs, which meant they had to be on the floor at the Gap selling retail up until 4 o'clock on Sunday. So after a few months, we filled the chapel to capacity and Operation Push. And then we found out through our informants at the UCC that there was an empty building over on the Southwest side. I said, is it one of those white flight churches? They said, yeah, you know, the white people all left when the Mexicans moved in. I said, okay, and the church had closed and there was just a daycare in there. Empty church, empty second building multiple floors, 60,000 square feet altogether. It was right near Midway, on a bus line, on a train line. So we said, okay, let's go ask for that. <laughs> they said, well, we want $89,000 for it. We said, okay, we'll take it. Ain't got five cents in my pocket, but we'll take it. But what we did is that we took 100 people from our congregation with us to ask for it. And I don't know if you ever saw School of Rock. How many people have seen School of Rock? You know that scene in School of Rocks when Mr. Black tells the kids to stand by the bus because they're trying to do this concert and they won't let them in to act real sick? I said, congregants, y'all going to have to put on a show today. I want y'all having puppy dog eyes. (laughs) We need a church, please. Can we have a church? And we went in there strong. And we left with the keys. And we said, we'll pay you $400 a month, and then we'll pay it over time. We'll work it out. Thank you for the keys. And then we left. Those keys burned (laughs) out. I can never forget that. Those keys, when they gave them to us, that was it. We left there so fast to get over to that church. It was a wonderful day. But those puppy eyes, dog eyes did work. So now, why did people come? We got a proclamation. We got a mission. We got a building. Now, why are they going to come? Some came because we had an amazing, flamboyant, ultra-gay procession. (laughs) To see Lois, Lois, six-foot-four, ex-Navy seal, black, transgender woman, walk down that aisle with the cross, was a sight to behold. And behind her, someone holding the Bible. And behind them, a kid carrying the African-American red, black, and green flag. And next to them, the rainbow flag. And a flurry of children behind them every week. They came because we had, they had questions. I remember one newcomer saying, I don't believe this church is a real church. How can you have a real church and not condemn me? That particular person who I'm still friends with on Facebook to this day came to church every single week and dared me to love the hell out of him, dared me to love the hell out of him, literally. They came because they wanted to get married. They came because they believed God had to be loving. Everything in their life told them that love was a boundful and plentiful thing, and they couldn't see it in church. They knew God had to be different than what they were told. They came to find partners and boyfriends and girlfriends. They came because they were parents and they wanted their kids to be proud of their parents in church and not hide under the pews. When somebody said, which one is your mama? They came because they heard that this church helps people in trouble and will stand up for issues in the larger black community. They came with AIDS because they wanted a church to bury them in the clothes that they wore during life and not the clothes that relative chose for them in death. They came because they were hungry for food, housing, faith development and right living and education opportunities that they could use. They came to learn how to combat those seven clobber scriptures used in the Bible to condemn gay people. And they did throw, did so through study and role play that we did in church. Pretend you're talking to your grandmama about this. Let's see how well you do. I remember when I explained that the word homosexual didn't become part of the English language until the late 1800s and didn't appear in English translations of the Bible until 1946. Many were taking down notes. High school dropouts going, I'm going to write this down. I'm going to have to tell somebody this. This is interesting. In a bar one night where the owner used to let us have a little corner and wear our collars and make announcements over the loudspeaker about the churches and our programming i remember sometimes we counsel and support people coming right off the dance floor about their life issues and we sat there every weekend till two till closing listening counseling talking i remember sharing that there were no biblical or hebrew or greek words for homosexuality one night, right there in the club. I said, ain't no words in the, you know, and I was saying it loud enough to draw a little crowd, you know, and as with many other words, I said that don't appear in the original language, including virgin. Folks were listening above the sounds of the house music saying, preach it pastor. Now Chicago is a city with 1 million black people and some of the most powerful black institutions in the country. The churches were no exception. So we made sure that we were going to go to every event with all the powerful black pastors, whether we was invited or not. (laughs) I mean everything. We showed up. Alma and I showed up in our collars, and we knew that it was going to be very difficult It was going to be very difficult for them to wrestle us off of the chancel and still look dignified at this event. (laughs) And we weren't going nowhere. In fact, many times we would like slip out a door. We We weren't invited, but we'd find another way to get in there. We'd slip up on the chancel at the prayer breakfast for the black community, at the such and such with the mayor. We'd always be there. We would show up so our people knew we would show up. So they ignored us, they tried to act like they didn't see us. But often, Alma um and I are both extremely mischievous people. <laughs> so I remember a few times we would, we would get the, I'll just say his name, Bishop Brazier, I'll say that. He has large, one of the largest churches in Chicago. And we stand at Mr. Bishop Brazier, who was very, very homophobic, and I'd say, hello Bishop Brazier, how you doing today? And while we were on the chancel, I'd whisper in his ear and I'd say, A bishop, if if you don't want all them homosexuals up in your church, why don't you just send them on over here to open door? We'll take all your musicians. We'll take all your choir members. We'll take all your ushers. It's no problem. You don't have to have all them gay people singing up there so good. We'll take them all. (laughs) Oh, that was fun. (laughs) That's all we got <laughs> but we were in the house church of the open door was on the map we were visible out loud proud unapologetically and fabulously gay now what do we offer Richard Allen and the AME ministers in Philadelphia like most black ministers anywhere in the United States today you had to be the preacher the teacher the lawyer the advocate the medical advisor, the social worker, the probation officer, and sometimes you had to be a bouncer. We were no different. We negotiated with families to accept their teen children back home. We housed folks in two apartments we leased. We did funerals, lots of funerals, because in Chicago Black people on the south side, white people on the north side. Most segregated city in America. Life expectancy on the north side, 80. Life expectancy on the, blacks, on the south side, 60. We did lots of funerals. AIDS is still raging through our communities. We wore clerical collars and went to court with folks. We organized to surround the mosque that was down the street. We went to the imam. The black gay folks went to the imam and said, what can we do right after 9-11? He says, something, please. They're coming through from the suburbs, these, these white gangs, and they're throwing bricks at our mosque and our stores and everything. We said, we got you. We got you. We called our friends at St. Rita. I said, come on, priests, Put your old outfits on and come on over. And we surrounded that mosque together, a multi-faith interfaith ecumenical group, so they could pray. Led by who? The black gay folks. We built the first community computer lab. This is like pre-internet, but people didn't have laptops. Our people were so far behind, they didn't have resumes, they didn't have places to print things. This is the the days of the old Kinkos, okay? We had ESL classes for our Mexican neighbors. We worked with drug dealers to redirect their business options. I sat with them and we came up with business plans other than crack cocaine. We fought with the Chicago Police Department when one of our members was sodomized by four police officers. We sued the white gay HIV organization for lying to the CDC saying they were providing services in black communities when they were not, and we were dying at alarming rates. We won our argument with them and we ended up getting our own clinic. We helped a young man who was expelled from school for wearing red fingernail polish. Open Door Intervene with the school principal to keep him from dropping out and becoming hopeless and jobless and homeless or even jailed. We help people get that new HIV AIDS medicine that we have all knew that the white gays had but we didn't have access to. We help them extend their lives. We took old butch lesbians to get mammograms who have not gone to the doctor in 30 years because of the way they had been treated in the past. We develop leaders. We help people get their kids back. We help people find work and keep work. I remember one day a young man came into my office and says, I need a job. It's just a guy off the street. He says, but I've been to prison. I said, OK. He says, I'll work for free. He says, I know how to do all kinds of things. I was in federal prison. I was a smart criminal. And he was, (laughs) brilliant guy, figured out how to smuggle stuff with these mechanical things. It was very complex. But he says, I'll work for free for two weeks, and you see how I do, and then you decide if you want to pay me. (laughs) Wow. I said, (laughs) OK. So John Kelly worked for free, big strapping black guy, straight as an arrow. Nothing really been around a lot of gay people before. I said, you know who we are here? He says, that's cool, that's cool. And he worked hard. And from that day forward, I almost had a policy that I would only hire people who were ex-offenders. And I ended up hiring ex-offenders almost exclusively. (laughs) And I had the best building workforce I could have dreamed of having. Yeah, they said, they said, oh, no, you know, P.K., that was my street name, P.K., Pastor Karen, she only like you if you've been to jail. <laughs> so what did we build? What did we build? Over the course of eight, nine years, 345 souls built an institution where black gay folks, their friends and their families and their allies could strengthen and deepen their narrative identities. They had agency. They had communion. They had experienced redemption. And when the recession hit, when the recession hit, they know they say when the recession hit, some people get a cold black folks get the flu. Well, we got the flu real bad, and it hurt us financially. Resources started to dry up. And we lost some major funders and supporters and energy costs soared by 45% in Chicago that winter. So we were forced to close, but we had a good run and we had done our job and answered the question, why church? One of the surprising results of our closure was the same folks that were in the church went back to some of their churches of origin, but this time they went back demanding inclusivity. They went back, and some of them succeeded. Some of them, you know, this was a period of time, all of a sudden, after we closed, we start to see these little rainbow stickers on church signs. You know how you see those little rainbow stickers that say, y'all welcome? Well, they start to pop up in a couple of black churches that we never saw it pop up in before. We said, well, what's going on here? The folks who came out of Open Door went on to found at least three organizations, two clubs, and many became strategic thinkers in the larger black gay community and the larger gay community in Chicago and in the nation. They took the lessons of Open Door to create new communities of delicious care and uncompromising love and right on resistance. While there are many lessons a deeper dive into this brief abridged case study could provide, there are two lessons for us today for our Unitarian Universalist movement. The first lesson is churches need cultural clarity. I'm gonna say it again, get another drink of water. (laughs) Churches need cultural clarity. If culture is a commonly held set of values that support and drive the actions of an institution, that institution must be able to define its culture and drive the adoption of that culture and defend their culture from forces which would seek to dilute it. I remember when the UU world did a big story on us. First, they wasn't nobody paid attention, us. then all of a sudden, okay, here comes the world. I said, okay, now we're in. The UU world did a big story on us. So by the time GA came around that year, a lot of folks had heard about us. And I remember being on a panel at GA and someone asked if we had white members. I said, yes, we do, matter of fact, have white members. And then she went on to say, with her head cocked to the side, she wanted to know, how comfortable (laughs) are these white members in a church that's mostly black? I said, no, she didn't ask me that question. (laughs) So I kept my nice GA panel voice going. And I knew what church she had come from. So I said, it sounds like you would not be comfortable in our church, but our white people, our 20% of our congregation that is white are just as comfortable as they can be. They're fine, thank you. Now, knowing the church that she came from, I went on further to say that our white people at Church of the Open Door represent about the same number of black people in your UU church, and they are there for similar reasons they grew up around black people are married to black people feel more at home with black worship don't feel comfortable in all white environments isn't that the same for people of color in uu churches i know that's going to be sticky right here but it's the same percentage and the same reasons At this most vulnerable place called church, we need to be among people we're comfortable with and cultures sometimes so that we can realize who we are, who we are, and celebrate that in all of its glory and all of the vernacular that goes with it and the head movement and the movement of the body, the embodied sense of culture. We must have that to be in this vulnerable place called church. We can't do this while negotiating white fragility. Think about it, if Richard Allen hadn't got up and left. <sighs> Last lesson. You all remember, some of us are old enough to remember this little thing you do with your hands, the little game. Here's the church, remember? Say it with me. Here. Look inside and hear the people. It's so simple. The church steeple come inside and hear are the people here they are the people are many they come to church broken these people they come joyful they come pain they come triumphantly they come uncooperatively they come ready and seeking affirmation love hope change and a place to die with those who love them first universalist We don't need to ask why church, not just because this is the last day of the month of that theme. (laughs) We don't need to ask why church anymore, because you know why. You know why church, because you keep coming back. You show people in your family at Thanksgiving when you talk about your church to your relatives, why church? You speak why church to the injustices you see at work and in your neighborhood and in the world and in this city and you speak up. That's why church. You know why church? Because you have a solid workable plan every week to get down there, get your coffee and your egg roll before they run out. (laughs) You know why church? Because tomorrow, you're going to ponder something you heard today or last week in church, and you're going to sit down and talk it over with a friend over lunch and go deeper. You know why, church? Because that hug you got today may be the only hug you get this week. And for that warm, heartfelt feeling, that hug, it was worth getting up this morning and coming through those doors. You know why, church. You know why, church. Because no matter how cool and individualized and self-actualized and self-differentiated we all are, it still feels good to be one of many. Singing, thinking, laughing, joking, and loving. This is why, church, from African Methodist Episcopal Church to Church of the Open Door, to First Universalists. You are why church. And I want to just say that when I left Church of the Open Door, I went on to become a chaplain and all these other things. But I did, for one moment, talk to the folks in ministry about becoming a UU minister in another church. And they said, well, you have to do another internship. I said, my internship, I started a damn church. And took all my classes and got good grades. What do you want? They said, no, we need you to do an internship in a traditional UU church. So I said no to that and I never did put my name in to be settled as a minister in any church. And it wasn't until Justin and I were joking around. He says, why don't you come on over here for a little bit? I said, well, maybe, you know, I don't know. But it wasn't until this church that I had a chance to serve a UU church. And I thank you so much for that because it's a piece of healing that needed to happen. And I thank you so much for giving me an opportunity. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming community that finds strength in the diversity of identities of all who find inspiration and comfort here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text FIRSTUNIV, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Um, you know, hearing it for the second, I thought I was going to be okay. <laughs> um, Karen, I think I've known you for like seven, eight years now. I think I've known you for seven or eight years now, and I've, I've known... I've known a little bit about that story. And I've known that you haven't told that story. Not like this. And so I know what an honor it is for you to share that with us today, and I thank you. It really means a lot for me.